begins in Luke 13, verse 31, and runs through 14:24. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your, ch- ch- your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, If... One of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day. Will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor or at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the less important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet... He sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I cannot come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in, so that in my house will be filled. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated.
Before looking at the scriptures today, I want to go back to last week. Hopefully, most of you were here last week. We spoke about the exclusivity and the inclusivity of the gospel. And one of the major threats was uh, universalism and the belief that all roads lead to heaven. There's been a lot of uh, articles this week, and one caught my eye, and it was about the uh, quarterback Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers. I don't know if any of you have read what's going on there, but uh, they've interviewed him, and uh, he has uh, had some comments about the Christian faith. I just want to read some of this article to you, uh, because there's also a good couple of questions at the end. Um, Rogers goes on to explain that he grew up in a devout Christian home. His family attended a non-denominational church, and he was taught all the Bible lessons as a kid. It wasn't until later in life that he started to really question things. He was religiously taught a lot. He recalls specifically a concern that struck him with, I remember asking a question as a young person about someone in a remote rainforest, he tells me, because the, the words that I got were, if you don't confess your sins, then you're going to hell. And I said, what about the people that don't have a Bible readily accessible? This particularly bothered Rogers because of his teammates and friends, uh, who are not in a rainforest, by the way, uh, that would be going to hell if he were to believe that statement. Ex-Mars Hill pastor Rob Bell was invited by the Packers to speak to the team in 2008, and Rogers began a strong friendship with him. Bell sent him books on religion to read, and Aaron even gave him feedback on his books. It was after reading those books and conversations he had with Rob Bell that Rogers came to the conclusion that the beliefs he had been taught to have as a child were wrong. It was then he realized that spirituality was more inclusive and a lot less literal like he struggled with. Rogers credits Bell's research for his now belief that they're, they're not being a literal hell and that the Bible speaks that it wasn't a fiery pit idea, which was a 1700s idea. In the interview, he goes on to say that Genesis is a beautiful piece of work, but never meant, it, meant to inter- be interpreted as the churches do. Aaron now believes that organized religion can have a mind debilit- can have a mind debilitating effect because there is an exclusivity that can shut you out from being open to the world, to people and energy and love and acceptance. He didn't used to think that way. He used to be more black and white, as others may call absolute. When Rogers was asked if he still saw himself as a Christian, he responded that he no longer identifies with any affiliation. Surprising that he doesn't believe in hell since the, that game they had against the 49s. I thought it was probably a hell for him. <laughs> they got pretty well uh, killed. But the, uh, the writer ends this with four questions or statements. First, our children don't inherit their parents' belief. They must ultimately come to the conclusion and submission to the truth of Jesus for themselves. It is so important that we pray for our children. Second, when someone's curiosity reaches out to another for more knowledge in the scriptures that is outside of the Bible, they can be swayed and misled to believe something other than what the Holy Spirit planted earlier. Three, hell is real. Jesus believes it. 
but very few desire to believe that this day. When we watch Aaron Rodgers' greatness on the field, it is more important that we care about his soul. And as long as he has breath, there is time for him to repent and believe as he once did. Rob Bell uh, pushes the doctrine of universalism. All right? Everybody's going to get to heaven. And it doesn't really matter uh, what you believe in. And so uh, we see from last week uh, how that goes against the scriptures and what Jesus taught about there being an exclusivity, but also an inclusivity. All right? Um, the gospel invites all, and there's going to be a lot of people in glory, but it's only for believers. Now let's turn to today's scripture. I don't know if you found that interesting. I found that interesting, so I shared it with you. As we read today, one is suspect about why the Pharisees were warning Jesus in our passage today. Were they really concerned about his welfare? Haven't they been trying to trap him in his teaching and discredit his miracles? So why are... We see, what, what we see here now, this sudden concern for him, are they all of a sudden playing nice? We are not told directly. However, Jesus does tell them to go back to that fox, Herod. Now, this seems to imply that they had communications previously with Herod. Were they trying to scare Jesus' way? Hey, he's going to kill you. Were they concerned for themselves that if that if Herod got angry, he might take it out on the entire religious establishment. We can only speculate. One Old Testament scholar notes that the Jewish usage of fox implies low cunning as opposed to straightforward dealing, and it is used in contrast to lion to describe an insignificant third-rate person as opposed to a person of real power and greatness. And so our great lion of Judah sends a response back to Herod the fox. He says, I must keep going. And he's speaking of a holy obligation and a divine appointment that he has. And like so many prophets before him, Jesus' heart to do the Father's will and to do the task that is set before him burned deep. Completing his mission would mean a cruel persecution which would end in his death. And Jesus would meet his death in Jerusalem, as did many of the prophets. Second Chronicles 24-21 speaks of the prophet Zechariah. But they plotted against him, and by order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. The prophet Jeremiah was, was beaten and abused, and he was thrown into a pit. According to Jeremiah 26, Uriah who prophesied against Jerusalem, was tracked down, brought to the king Jehoiakim, and executed, and his body thrown in the place of a common people. And as the city of God, Jerusalem also represented the Jewish people. But their legacy was one of rebellion to the extent that they abused and killed the prophets. And yet Jesus laments over Jerusalem, meaning the Jewish people and their obstinate refusal to accept him as their Messiah. He says, but you were not willing. 
And such is the devastating consequences of the fall in that sin has killed their will. It has killed our wills. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 3.10, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Jesus weeps over this hard-heartedness. Much like we would weep if we see our, our child on the path of destruction with drugs or alcohol and refusing to heed counsel, we would weep. And then Jesus pronounces the consequences. Look, your house is left desolate. As we have seen over the last few weeks as we continue to go through the gospel, Jesus' message of repentance a call to faith and baptism, to enter through the narrow door, have gone unheeded. Destruction in the form of the Roman legions was waiting in the wings. The city, the temple, and the people would soon be destroyed. All sin and unbelief will be punished. In chapter 14, we find that Jesus now is in the home of a prominent Pharisee. It was the Sabbath, and as the text indicates, he was being carefully watched. This was not a friendly gathering. Perhaps each Pharisee that engaged Jesus sort of thought that they could do a better job at trapping him, since they've all failed so far. So they kept inviting him to the synagogues and to dinner. And this time we're told it was a prominent Pharisee, a big gun. What we read next is almost a repeat of what we had in chapter 13 with the healing of the bent-over woman. In front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, or abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? or not. But they remain quiet. So Jesus reaches out and he heals the man. This man was suffering from dropsy, which meant his body was filling with his own body fluids, most likely from cardiac or renal failure. Ultimately, his lungs would fill with that fluid and would certainly prove fatal. But at this moment, the man was still well enough to be at this dinner. Perhaps attend is a, the wrong word to use here. It would be highly unlikely for a diseased person to be invited to a Pharisee's home. That would make the home unclean. Well, you know, if the man somehow touched a Pharisee, he would be unclean. It seems much more likely that this man was specifically planted here to see what Jesus would do. Remember, they're watching him carefully, it says. We infer this because Jesus heals the man, but then he sends him away. So if the man was an original guest, he wouldn't have done that. And Jesus again uses the argument that they take better care of their animals on the Sabbath 
than they do their people. It's interesting that Jesus uses these words, if your animals or your son fell into a well, they would not let their son or their animals drown. Why should they let this man drown in his own body fluids? And they had nothing in response to say. And there must have been a very awkward silence falling on that dinner. Perhaps that's why Jesus changes the subject. He directs everyone's attention to seating arrangements. We all know the common difficulty of seating arrangements at a wedding reception, right? Who's going to sit closest to the bride and the groom? You know, who wants to sit with whom? Who doesn't want to sit with whom? And what are you going to do with old crazy Uncle Charlie? You know, you just don't know. Well, apparently, this dilemma goes way back in history, so it's nothing new. So the first part of this parable deals with these dinner guests all jockeying for the best seats. We shouldn't really think that they're actually chairs. There was kind of cushions around the table. Everybody lounged. And Jesus cautions them not to seek the best seats because someone more important may come in, and the host will come to you and say, oh, excuse me, you don't belong here. You go down there so that my friend here can move in, and then you'll be humiliated. It kind of reminds me of those people at the, at the, at the ball games that buy the cheap bleacher tickets, and then they sneak down to the field tickets when nobody's there, and they sit there, only to have the, uh, the usher soon come down with the people who do belong there, and they say, oh, you, you got, Mike, you're laughing. I hope you don't do that. <laughs> so, but, you know, that's, that's what happens, you know? And they, they get humiliated. And Jesus rebuffs these efforts, and he, and he turns the, the whole system up on its head. When you're invited, take the lowest seat. Be humble. This way, the host, when he comes in, he says, what are you sitting there for? Come up here, and then you'll be honored. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And although this is wise advice for seating arrangements, this parable, it's not about dining etiquette. Nor is the next parable about the the great banquet. This person shouts out, uh, you know, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus takes this opening to tell another parable. A wealthy man throws a huge feast. He sends out an invite, invites all of his friends to come to the, the invite uh, to the feast, the banquet. And then they ha- that was the way they did it in that day, much like we do. You send out those invites for an RSV so you know how much food to order and things to have. But then the time comes, everything's ready, it's cooked, all right? We've got to go out. And the servant goes out again, and the same people he invites, and they start refusing. They come up with lame excuses. You know, the servant comes back, tells the owner, he becomes angry. He says, forget them. Go out into the highway, the back alleys and the streets, invite the poor, the disabled, the handicapped to the banquet. Servant goes out, he comes back, we did that. There's still room. He says, go further, go out into the highways and the byways, the country. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Again, this is not a parable about dining etiquette and how to respond 
to a, an invitation. There's something much more deeper going on here. And to grasp what Jesus is driving at, we need to remember that he is, what he has just been preaching about over the last few chapters. He was showing that the kingdom of God, though small as a mustard seed, was here. It had arrived with his healings, even on the Sabbath. He sent out the vivid call to repent or perish. He spoke of the narrow door, which was the exclusive way to enter into the banquet feast of the kingdom. The narrow door meaning belief in Jesus as Messiah. He warned about having pride and false security in the heritage as children of Abraham. So the first parable addresses the issue of pride. In effect, Jesus is reminding them that the best seats will be given by the host as he sees fit. Even the disciples had to learn this, didn't they? Remember the mother of James and John, the good Jewish mom, comes up to Jesus and says, let my sons sit on the left and right of you in the kingdom. And what did Jesus respond? To sit on the left or right is not for me to grant. Their places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. See, proud individuals who think they deserve the best will be sorely disappointed when they are asked to vacate their seats for another. Before God, there's no room for pride. No one deserves an invitation from God in the first place, let alone the best seat in the house. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, reminds them of this. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Whatever grace one has is unmerited favor. As such, humility should be one's cloak. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And the warning of Christ, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is kind of another way of expressing his warning back in 1326. Where they were saying, but we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And that was their way of saying that there was certain pride, but we were close to you. We walked around with you. We're your friends. We're your buddies. And Jesus back then answered them, I never knew you. Away from me, all you evildoers. So Jesus is calling this crowd to exercise humility. I don't even deserve the last seat, let alone the first seat. And thus recognizing that they deserve nothing. Humility is a, that unassuming and different and unpretentious. It's a need that, the, that only those who understand it truly grasp the unmerited favor of God's grace. We don't deserve it. Augustus Toppledy in his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, has one stanza, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless 
look to thee for grace. And we know, of course, that when it comes to humility, Christ is our example. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even the death on the cross. Because Christ is our example, Paul writes in Ephesians, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. True humility is neither self-exaltation or self-abasement. but it's rightly understanding who we are before Christ. The parable of the great banquet has similar themes in the Old Testament. God had sent out invitations throughout history by his prophets to come and to taste and see that the Lord is good. However, the time had come And Jesus was announcing that the kingdom feast is ready. And some didn't come and sit. And a few came. And the excuses came as well. And so God once again expands. Remember last week we talked about how the gospel is now going out from Jerusalem, rather than bringing everybody in. And he calls the disenfranchised and the marginalized those considered unclean and unworthy. And then he calls the foreigners, Gentiles. And he says to the servant, compel them to come in. Now, unfortunately, this word has been used to justify all sorts of threatenings and forced conversions in history. But that's not what it means. For a Gentile, at that time, to be invited to a Jewish home, and particularly a Pharisee's home, was unheard of. It would have come as a shock. The compel is to be more understood as to convince. Do not take no for an answer until you convince them to come. And this expanding invitation that's going out should remind us of Acts 1.18, where we read Jesus telling the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's invitation is not to be ignored without dreadful consequences. As Christ warned, I tell you, not one of those who were invited and did not come will get a taste of my banquet. He wept over Jerusalem's refusal to believe, and he prophesied, look, your house is left desolate. Refusal means judgment, condemnation. 
But for those who accept Christ's invitation to the great banquet, to those who put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus, they will experience everlasting joy and abundance. Isaiah 25, 6 reads, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest wines. And all this points to the great and final feast that we read about in Revelations 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. In these parables, he's not telling the Pharisees how to host an event. He is offering them an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb, to believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The invitations and the banquet are not about social etiquette. The invitation is to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Just think about how different it would have been if the Pharisees understood that and accepted that. What joy he would have had realizing that he stood in the presence of Messiah. He would not be able to contain his joy, would you? And so it's with us, God has come near and has personally offered us a seat at his table. Some of you have already taken your reservations. You've said yes to Jesus. You believe and you're trusting him as your Lord and Savior. Perhaps others still need to do that. Whereas the Pharisees refused it and returned to the pig trough of bitter Jealous unbelief. They miss the demonstration of God's love, and thereby they will never take that seat. But God demonstrates his love for us by offering a reserved seat at the wedding of the Lamb and his church to his children. And Jesus' invitation is still being offered today, as we read in Revelation Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so to be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, listen to this, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow, talk about the best seat in the house. Christ will invite us to sit on his throne. This thought caused Brother Lawrence in the mid-1600s, whose wisdom and advice are collected in a little booklet, The Practice of the Presence of God, to rejoice. He wrote, The king, full of mercy and goodness, very far from chastening me, embraces me with love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, 
gives me the key of his treasures. He converses and delights himself with me incessantly in a thousand and a thousand ways and treats me in all respects as his favorite. He sings over me. But Christ has in store for you, believer. The banquet is ready. The invitation has been sent out. You need but respond to reserve your seat at the table. What unimaginable joy. If Christ is knocking at the door of your heart today, open it. Put your faith and trust in him. Repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did. Come into my life. Help me to follow you. And he will. And then follow him. Today can be the day of your salvation. The day you grab that invitation. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we rejoice in you. We thank you, Lord, so much for your invitation. And Lord, we can't even fathom what being at your table would be like and how you fuss over us. Lord God, that you would even think of having someone like me sit on your throne with you boggles my mind. But Lord, you love us that much. Like a father picking up his little one and putting him behind the wheel of a car or sitting on his lap saying, here, this is what it's like. So you'll do with us. We thank you for your grace. Unmerited favor. Lord, we, we did not even deserve an invitation, let alone that promise. We praise you and we thank you for it all. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.